or maybe Jessica. Um, where's that? My table. Let's uh, pray in preparation for the message this morning. Heavenly Father, pray that you be with us today. Um, Lord God, as I as I bring the message today, I pray that you would help us to to hear from you, Lord. That that I would uh, bring out what the scriptures have to say. That I would be faithful to the message. That I would be faithful to your word. Um, that I would uh, point over and over again to Christ. Um, I pray that you would be with the people who are here this morning. Um, that they would hear from you and and know you more by hearing the word preached. Um, give us your grace in in uh, in this time and and. Uh, just, just help us to worship you with our minds and, and to know Christ more intimately. Amen. Um, I, I was reading this morning, and I, I came across a story uh, that made me change my mind about what I was going to use as my opening illustration. I, I, was, I was reading about uh, Khrushchev, and <clears throat> um, Khrushchev used this illustration a number of times in speeches where where he uh, talked about this wave of thefts that were happening in factories across the Soviet Union, where, where workers were stealing tools and, and supplies and, and produ- produced materials. And, and so, so this huge wave of factories, and it prompted, um, it prompted them to put guards at the factory entrances, and they would search factory workers as they came in and out to make sure that they weren't stealing stuff. And... Um, in one particular uh, factory in Leningrad, um, there was a guard um, who was there, and, and he was out there, and he actually knew. He was from the area, and he knew all of the factory workers really well and was friends with many of them. And, and this, this fellow comes out with a wheelbarrow on the first day, and, and he's got this wheelbarrow with a sack, like a bulging sack. And the guard, of course, thinks, well, this is a problem. He's clearly stealing. Um, and so he stops him, and, and the fellow's name, who with the wheelbarrow, his name was, was uh, Peter Petrovic. Um, and and he, he, I'm pronouncing it wrong, but I, there's, there's a bunch of vowels missing from that word. So like I, <laughs> that's my approximation. Um, so, so Petrovic is there with his wheelbarrow, and the guard says, well, what's in the bag? Let me see it. Like, what are you stealing? And he says, oh, I'm not stealing anything. It's full of sawdust. There's nothing but sawdust in that bag, and I got permission to take it since we're not using it. And so the guard didn't believe him, and he dumps out the bag and spreads the sawdust out and searches it, and there's nothing there. And, and Petrovic has to sweep up his sawdust and put it back in the bag and put it in the wheelbarrow, and he wheelbarrows it off. And the next day, Petrovic comes out again with a wheelbarrow and a sack and again full of sawdust and actually does this every day. And the guard is kind of getting frustrated because he knows this guy is stealing something. What are you going to do with sawdust? And, and after a week, he finally stops them and they're friends. He says, listen, I won't arrest you. I won't interfere. But what on earth are you stealing? I know you're stealing something. What are you stealing? And the factory worker looked at him and said, I'm stealing wheelbarrows. <laughs> um, the, the guard was so preoccupied, was so preoccupied with the obvious thing that was being stolen, with the, uh, with the obvious that he was distracted from what was actually taking place, right? Like he didn't notice the real theft that was taking place. Um, we're working our way through Second Peter, 
And, and um, we've been talking about the false teachers, right? And so there's three chapters here. In the first chapter, Peter, like, it's a full reminder. And we're going to talk about that a little bit today. The second chapter is an attack on the false teachers and, and their false teaching. And this third chapter is where we're at, and it points back to the first chapter. Um, and so we're going to kind of kind of work through here. But as we start this, this very beginning of this chapter is all about the thing that is stolen that we might not notice is being stolen. Um, the, the, the thing that's sort of being snatched out from underneath us um, or underneath these people, like the, the thing that's stolen from them as a church that, that isn't obvious. Um, and, and so as we get into this, um, just be aware, like, like these false teachers, a little background, these false teachers had come in and they were probably like sort of Epicurean in their philosophy. That's a, a Greek philosophy that believed that the gods were there, but they wouldn't intervene, right? Like they kind of hung out in their Mount Olympus area and they didn't do anything to intervene or interfere with humanity. And so we live our lives and do whatever because the, the, the other world has no consequence to us. And when you die, you're done, and that's it. And so they were teaching, like, like they, they had taken this Greek philosophy and adapted it to Christianity, um, is sort of the general consensus among scholars, like, like that they had taken this teaching, and they were teaching the believers, look, Jesus is not coming back. He left. He is not returning. There is no second coming. There will be no judgment. God showed up once, sure, but he has written off the creation at this point. And from here on out, there are no consequences to how you live. You know, you can drink, you can get drunk, you can steal, you can um, sleep around, you can do whatever, like because Jesus is out of the picture now. And they were corrupting the church, and there was all this conflict, and, and Peter addresses these people and basically says, hey, look, they're in trouble and, like, they don't know how in trouble they are. Um, <clears throat> and so now, having talked all about the kind of um, wrath of God that's coming on these folks, um, we're going to get into what Peter is talking about here, like his, his closing chapter. So he finishes up, and he transitions says, Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. We're going to pause there. Um, a lot of folks assume that this is, like, referring to the fact that First Peter, Second Peter. Um, probably not, actually. It's probably the case that Peter wrote a ton of letters in his lifetime, and, like, we just happen to have the second one in this series. Um, though it may be referring to First Peter, it's, there's not really a good argument for it being First Peter or not being First Peter, except that, like, we've got that one, right? Um, so just kind of a little interesting note. It's probably not First Peter. He's saying, like, my first letter to you. Um, but this is my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. Now, um, in this instance, Peter is saying, hey, remember. Hey, pay attention. You know what the fundamentals are. You know what the basics are. You know what the truth is. Remember it. And actually, that's where Peter started his letter. We're going to go back to one chapter 1 here, verses 12 to 13. He does his introduction. <coughs> Sorry, still fighting a cold. So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body. Um, so Peter like, starts out his letter saying, hey, I'm here to remind you, I'm here to remind you, I'm here to remind you. Um, and he comes back around and he says, listen, remember, remember, remember. This is a reminder to stimulate your thinking in the right direction. Um, I watch a great... Uh, I was looking for motivational uh, talks 
um, um, because I, 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 I don't know, because I look for that kind of thing occasionally. And I watched this talk from Arnold Schwarzenegger. He was doing this talk about bodybuilding. And he said that, that when, he started, when he started bodybuilding as like a teenager, he had photos and magazine pictures that he ripped out of like boxers and like strong men. And he hung them up all over his wall. And every morning he would lay in bed and he'd look at them before he got up. And he would watch these people. And he would say, that's what I'm going to look like. That is, that is me. That is, that is where I'm going. And every day he would get up and look at them. This is my goal. This is my goal. This is my goal. Um, and the reason he would do that is because he would say, you know what? If I didn't do that, I would forget this is where I'm going. And then, like having not remembered where I'm going, I might get up and see that there's cake for breakfast. I'm not quoting him directly. You know, but I, I might get distracted. I might chase after something other than what my goal is. And so I have to keep my goal in front of me all the time. Um, this is kind of the same thing. Um, whereas Schwarzenegger was doing this thing so he could look a certain way and, and shape his body in a certain way, we're, we're about shaping our soul. We're about shaping our eternity to become and to go to a particular place. And it's something we have to remember. You know why we have to remember it? Because there's a million things in the world that are there to distract us, right? I, I um, am driven crazy by um, there are a bunch of uh, there are a bunch of pastors that I have at one point in time or another like really respected, but who are so focused on politics now that they don't talk about Jesus anymore, or they've they've destroyed their witness talking about everything else in the world, but and they've gotten distracted. Um, I've known a number of new believers like where they come to know Christ and they're excited. And as they get into their excitement, they suddenly become distracted and head somewhere else. Or you'll see this in churches a lot of times where churches will have a huge, huge fight. Actually, I heard about one when I was in the Presbyterian church where they had a piano on the right side of the stage. And the pastor decided to move it to the left side of the stage. And the church split over it. And in fact, it came to a culmination when there was a fight one morning when in the middle of service, somebody got up and tried to move the piano. In the middle of service. <laughs> but that's a distraction. You know why? Because a piano doesn't matter. That's the sawdust. Man, all I can see is this sawdust. And in reality, the gospel is being stolen out from underneath them. Right? In this instance, these teachers are saying, Christ isn't coming back. Do what you want. And in reality... The urgency that comes with the knowledge that Christ is coming back and we will one day stand before him, it's being stolen. And, and man, of all the things to have stolen from you, that is the one you don't want to lose. Because we can easily become distracted with nonsense that doesn't matter, right? I, I have spent whole years, years and years of my life, um, and I try not to do this now, but at one point in time I would watch other believers, and I would compare myself to them, always with me more favorable, right? Because, like, you don't do it the other way around. I would compare myself to them and talk about, like, in my head, like, man, I am, and I would, I would waste time just trying to be better than the guy around me or trying to look better than the guy around me. And in reality, what I'm doing at that point is I'm distracting myself from the fact that their sins don't matter to me. I need to be Christ-like. Their sins, you know, they matter to me in the respect that I want them to go to heaven. I want them to be holy and I want them to be all of these things. But like, like I'm stealing, I am distracted and I'm losing something vital because ultimately what you all think of my walk with Christ 
it's not going to amount to anything. Right? None of y'all are going to judge me. Oh, man, do I really want to quote that? Only God can judge me. But that's the thing that should terrify me. Right? I've heard people say, only God can judge me while they're in the middle of sinning. And it's like, yes, but if you really understood what that meant, <laughs> you would be horrified by the reality of it. It would, it would freeze you in your tracks. Um, and so Peter is in this place. He's saying, remember, guys, do not forget this. This matters. It's important. It's a big deal. You are firmly established in this truth, but bring it back to the forefront. So you are focused. You are heading in the right direction. Um, at one point in time, I think earlier in the series, I talked about the post at the end of the field, right? You aim your combine at the post at the end of the field, and you drive toward it. And you keep your eye on that post because that's how you drive where you're going. If you get lost and go in a different direction, you've got a problem. Um, I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior uh, through your apostles. Now, again, Peter is coming back to his previous argument because in chapter 1, right after he said this remember thing, he says, We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we heard with him on the sacred mountain, or when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And he's talking about the transfiguration. So he's saying, We witnessed this, we know it's true. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So Peter comes back and he recaps his argument. He says, listen, I told you what I saw, and the prophets told you the truth. This is the basis of our argument. Pay attention to it. Focus on it. Keep your mind on it. Where have the prophets told us? The prophets have told us that Christ is coming back, that God will one day hit the reset button, that God will judge, that God will reward, that there will be big things coming. That's what matters, right? How big my house is, how nice my car is, which party which won which election, how much my taxes are, um, how much my 401K piles up to, whether or not I'm thinner and handsomer or Whatever, all of that stuff is going to catch fire and disappear. All of it, every ounce of it. And if I get so distracted by my 401k that I lose track of eternity, my retirement will be short and it will be the best part of eternity for me. Because then I will stand before God and I'll have lost the most important thing. Because I was paying attention to the sawdust and not the wheelbarrow. It's so easy to do. It's so easy to do when you're busy, right? I, when you've got to get kids here and deal with homework there and you've got to get the dishes washed and dinner made and everything else, it is so easy to be in that rush and to forget Christ is coming back. I had, um, was reading, uh, the last few months I've been reading uh, philosophy books. I, I picked up a couple when I was on vacation last time and I, I thought, hey, I'll read some philosophy just because my life's easy enough. I should make it harder. Um, and, and one of the books I'm reading is uh, by a Stoic, an ancient Stoic writer, and, and he talks about the importance of thinking about death every day. And he says, one of the practices you should have is you should get up in the morning, you should think about the fact that you're going to die, and you should spend some time thinking about it. And that does seem a little crazy, but for the Stoic, like what he would say is, by doing that, you remember you have the time you have this is not all there, you know, this is all there is, and so use it while you can. In reality, we as believers should think about Christ's return regularly because 
if Christ shows up tomorrow, how am I, how am I doing? I had somebody ask me, if you knew you were going to die tomorrow, what would you do? Well, I'd get up and go to work. I would. Like, like because, because I'm doing what I want to do. I'm doing what I think God has called me to do. Um, I probably would not... I probably would not spend an hour on Facebook. Right? Candy Crush would not be on the agenda. Wouldn't. Right? I, I, I would probably take my kids out and play with them. I would probably tell my wife I love her. Right? Like, these things... Like when they're brought to the forefront of us, like what, what would Christ have me do if he was coming back tomorrow? What would I do with this? If I knew I was going to be judged, if I knew I would stand before him, if I knew that, if I knew that you were going to stand before him and be judged tomorrow, and I'll tell you what I would tell you. Um, you will not get to heaven by being good. You will not work hard enough to get to heaven. You will not give enough to get to heaven. You will not serve enough to get to heaven. You will not, on your own power, get to heaven. You will not do it. It is not possible. Um, The only thing that will save us when Christ shows up tomorrow is if we are his people, if we belong to him, if we have been forgiven because he was punished for us on the cross and we've accepted him as our Lord and we live like he's the Lord, right? Did you ever work with somebody who showed up to work and they acted like the boss wasn't in charge? Like you, that's not the way, right? Like Christ is in charge of my life and I love him and I serve him and I obey him um, and I don't earn my way. I belong to him and I am saved because I'm forgiven because he's punished in my place. That is it. If Christ's coming back tomorrow, I'm going to tell you guys that. That is what I'm going to tell you. And Peter says, listen, we told you, the prophets told you, look at it, take it seriously. Um, that was a huge rabbit trail. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. It's not a very sophisticated argument, but it's one we still hear, right? It's the way it always has been. Oh, I don't see miracles happening. I don't see, and I can actually back up and say, you know what, I... I've seen God do this in my life. I've seen God do this in this situation. I've seen God act in these ways. And I can look at that and say, and sometimes I've got to remind myself that. I'll get into this place where I'm frustrated and overwhelmed, and I'll back up and say, oh, yeah, I know God's in control because Christ rose. Christ has his hand on creation. God watches over me. This is what the scriptures say. And I can say, I've seen these things that God has done in my life. I know he's there because I know he loves me because we can always run back to that stuff. And Peter's warning, he's saying, listen, these guys are the beginning, and they will show up in the last days. The last days, by the way, is not a reference to the end times. It is a reference to, well, it is in a way. It's a reference to Christ ascends to heaven and Christ returns, all of those last days. So we're, we're at 2,000-some-odd you know, years of last days. But he will return. And he's saying, listen, there are people doubting. There are people calling into question. These people saying you won't come. But he is coming. Um, and actually, Paul touches on this with Timothy. He says, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want them to hear. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you 
Keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. Um, what Paul is saying and what Peter's touching on is this idea that as time progresses, people will get further and further away from the gospel and they'll begin to say, I can get to heaven by being better than you. Christ isn't coming back. I can do what I want. Um, Christ is over here and so I can um, be as permissive of, as I want or I can, I can self-indulge as much as I want or I can ignore the poor as much as I want or I can um, mistreat my neighbor as much as I want or I can um, hate these people because that's okay because I'm pretty sure Jesus would hate them too. Um, I can do these things because... Um, because God says it's okay. Like, we start to attract ourselves to people who say the things we want to hear, and our ears itch, and it, you know, like, I, I was at a house the other day visiting uh, some new folks, and their dog came around, and I just scratched up behind the ear, and you know what happened for the rest of the time I was there? That dog was there, <laughs> on my heel, like, following me around, like, hey, were you going to scratch my ear again? Hey, were you scratch my ear again? And that's that inclination we have, because of our sinful nature, we will look for people who will say, do what you want, it doesn't matter, Right? This world is all that matters. Power in this world is all that matters. The church will be changed by, you know, or the world will be changed by the church's exertion of power and not by the gospel or whatever. Like all of this nonsense that has nothing to do with the truth. In reality, the truth of the gospel is hard and it's often painful, but it's also sweet, right? It's sweet because we hear and know that by grace we're saved. It's hard because sometimes we have to say hard truths. Sometimes we have to warn people, look, you know, you got to know Christ. Um, sometimes we are attracted to teachers who would rather get sinners to act right than get them to know Christ, right? Who would rather tell you all of the rules you have to follow than to say, come to know Christ, devote your life to him, submit to him, follow him, give him 110% of everything. And that's what we're called to. Because honestly, if you want to get a sinner to stop sinning, you don't tell them the rules over and over again. You tell them about Christ, and Christ changes their heart. But we don't live in that time, right? And this is what Peter's warning. These guys are here, and they're lying. And they're lying to you because they want to do what they want to do. And actually, Peter goes on in verses 5 to 6. They are deliberately, but they deliberately forget that long ago God's word, that by God's word, the heavens came into being, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, by these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. So Peter's saying he's addressing their argument specifically. Look, the world's always been the way it is. God didn't really intervene then. God doesn't intervene. He's saying, listen, you guys know this truth. God created the world in Genesis, right? And this by water and through water is a reference to the fact that, like, if you go to Genesis 1, it is, you know, the, the earth was formless and deep and God's, God was above the water and there's a whole discussion we could have about whether or not that's a reference to chaos or brokenness or nothing or death or whatever. I mean, there's all this discussion that you can have. But the point is, God made the world, like it says that he separated the water from the land and the heavens from the earth. And like out of the water, God created the world. Um, but also he wiped out the world by the flood. Saying, listen, these guys may be saying that God doesn't intervene, but we know he intervened in the same way that he created. And God has authority by the word, meaning that God commanded it to happen. I was driving yesterday. My kids were being loud and horrible. I know that's a shock. Can anybody relate to that? 
And what I did was I turned over my shoulder and I said, stop yelling. And you know what happened? They kept yelling because I don't have any authority in my own car. (laughs) Right? Um, God is so authoritative that he can turn to the world and say exist, and it exists. He can command the sky to come about, and it comes about. He can say, let there be light, and where there is no light, there is light. God can create, um, ex nihilo is the phrase that um, theologians use. It's a Latin, means uh, from nothing, basically. Um, By his word, the heavens came into being, the earth was formed out of. So God is so authoritative that he can command that. And God can command the destruction of the world in judgment at the time of Noah. And so Peter's argument here is, listen, don't listen to these guys who are tricking you. Listen to the prophets. Listen to what we said. And know that God is this authoritative, that God is in charge, that God is running the show, and that God will ultimately, um, like that God judged the world by the same means that he created it. And then in verse 7, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Now, I read a lot of theories about what this means, and here's the one I'm going to offer you. Um, number one, it does basically, this is the only spot in the world where it says that the world will be burned away. Like the only time in the scriptures where we say reference to fire destroying the world. Just kind of an interesting little tidbit. I think it's a reference to the fact that the heavens and the earth will be cleansed by God's holiness and recreated in eternity. Um, we believe as believers, as Christians, we believe in Christ taught a bodily resurrection. That we'll all be resurrected in like this perfect form, in a, in a glorified form. Um, the world will be cleansed and made right. Um, because the like fall of man didn't just screw up man, it screwed up the creation. Right? I, I had a car once that I bought used, and, and it never worked right, and everything kind of was wrong, and eventually what I sort of figured was somebody had a really bad accident and fixed it, and nothing was ever right again. You ever, you ever have that? Um, the creation hit a wall at the fall, and nothing was ever right again. We're not meant to die in floods. Famines aren't meant to happen. Um, droughts aren't meant to happen. Uh, thorns are not meant to, to infest, our, infest our ground. We're not supposed to have stones in the middle of the field that you've got to pick. Um, like this is not the way God designed it. Um, but the fall has made this happen. Um, and ultimately will be cleansed. And every rock and every field will be gone, by the way. I'm pretty sure. I've never picked rocks, so I can't even talk about how bad that is. But I've heard, um, and I've been invited many times, and I'm still not doing it, um, By the same word, meaning that there will be a day that God will announce it is time and his holiness will purify the creation and those who have died in Christ will be resurrected for eternity. Um, The the central message of this, and if you're going to get anything else, if you've slept through most of the sermon and you're waking up right now because you're figuring out, oh, wait, it might be time to go to the luncheon. um, If you're going to hear nothing else I have to say, listen to this. Peter's reminder here is Jesus is coming back. Christ is returning. Um, And we need to take that seriously. Because losing that truth, that eternity is eminent, steals from us some of the most important aspects of Christianity. Some of the most important aspects of the faith. That we were made for eternity. 
that we're preparing for eternity. We're training for the day that we'll stand in God's presence and glorify him. We are training for that now. We are expanding the kingdom. We are serving people who will live forever before God or out of his presence. Like, there is urgency to this, and it could be tomorrow. Your life could be demanded of you tomorrow. It could be demanded of you on your way over to lunch after this. Like, the day is coming, and there is an urgency to it, and it's being stolen from us when we forget. We are called to share the gospel. We're called to pursue holiness. We're called to know Christ more intimately. This is our job. It's not to make sure the carpets look nice. That's important, but it's not the primary job. It's just not. Our primary job is to make sure that people hear the gospel, not that, not that you know, we get them to be nice to each other. That's not it. Um, our primary job is to fulfill the Great Commission. I wanted to close out with uh, Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. By the way, that's a really specific list. Right? And it's easy to fly over that and ignore it. Um. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry or feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did you see a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see a sick per- you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers or, and sisters of mine, you did for me. And so now here's my question real quick. If you knew Jesus was sitting at the nursing home, he's over there, you go and worship with him. If you knew that Jesus was a shut-in across town, would you go visit? If you knew Jesus was sitting in lockup down in Fort Benton, would you go by and, and say hi? Like if you knew that Jesus was, was, was in the hospital, would you go see him? Or in hospice, would you go and sit? Or wherever. Like, if you knew Christ was there, what would you do with it? If you knew he was coming back tomorrow, what would you do? Only knowing Christ as your Lord saves you. But we lose the urgency of the job we have as his people when we forget that tomorrow he's coming. And that he gave us a call and that one day we'll stand with the sheep or the goats and that'll be it. And that'll be it forever. I read a, an interesting story, um, and I'll close with this. Anybody watch the World Series last night? My wife's not up here to cheer. Uh, one of the fellow from the Houston Astros knocked a grand slam um, out of the park to put him up eight to one or something, and they won. Um, I assume that means the good guys won. Um, I was reading 
<laughs> this, that's why this story jumped out at me, and the more I thought about it, the more I, I thought it was worth talking about. Um, Yogi Berra was a catcher uh, for the Yankees, uh, and Hank Aaron came uh, to, to bat in the World Series when the Braves played the Yankees um, at, at the time. And, and Yogi Berra had a strategy that he employed as he would catch. He would sit there, and he would talk trash to the batter to distract them. And the whole time they were up there, he would have something to say. And he would always be saying something and always saying something. And Yogi Berra, if you know much about him, like, that guy never shut up. You know? And so he had a gift for it. And he was very successful as a catcher because he was really good at distracting, um, distracting batters. And, and so Hank Aaron comes up and he, holds the, he gets into his batting stance. And Yogi Berra says to him, hey, Hank, you're holding your bat wrong. You're supposed to hold it so that you can read the label on the bat, and that's how you hit right. And Yogi, Yogi Berra like, says this, and Hank Aaron ignores him, and the first pitch he knocks into the left field bleachers. And he runs the bases, and he crosses home plate. He looks at Yogi Berra, and he says, I didn't come up here to read. <laughs> Christ didn't save us to be distracted. He didn't send his son to pour out his blood so that we could argue. He didn't, like, pour himself out and take punishment for your sins so that we could gossip about each other or so that we could compare ourselves favorably to other people. Look at how much better I am than him. Or so that we could win elections or so that we could do any of that stuff. Christ died to redeem you. And our job is to step up and hit the ball, not to argue or read or get distracted. My challenge for you this week is to look at your life and say, what am I chasing that isn't Christ? Where is Christ in the world around me and I'm not going after him? Where is the lost sheep and I'm not out there hunting for him? I'm closing prayer and I'll let you go since I am long, long. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with us this morning. I pray that you would help us to, to be the kind of people who glorify you, Lord. I pray the things that distract us the everyday things, the, the bad teachings, the, the hobbies that keep us inoculated from, from doing your work or the worries of the world that want to choke out our faith or whatever it is like the, oh, I just need to do this and then I'll follow you, Christ. Whatever it is, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see it. Help us to be the kind of people who are single-minded and focused. And Lord God, help us to not be distracted by the reading, but to focus on swinging away for the fences in your name. Amen. Have a good morning, folks.